listeners, I'm Belinda Ongaro. I'm Dan. And I'm Timothy Arthur. And you're listening to Shout for Libraries on CJSR in Edmonton. For those of you who haven't tuned into Shout before, every month we pick a topic relevant to librarianship and information studies. And this month we thought we'd bring the season to a close by reflecting on the marvelous media we've consumed in the year of the pandemic. A sort of reader's advisory, if you will. Some we are proud to publicly announce that we consumed and others we may be somewhat reluctant to admit in public. Yes, and in true librarian fashion, we've decided to categorize our media consumption with some unconventional labels. Gone are the days of the Dewey Decimal System, my friends. Today, we will confine ourselves to three categories. Number one, transcendent art slash belongs on an academic syllabus or in a museum. Number two, guilty pleasures or quote unquote trash. And last but not least, number three, COVID coping and therapeutic media. Media of all kinds have value and purpose in our lives. It's important to keep in mind that the idea of media as cultural capital is socially constructed, not to mention pretty colonial. Just as a well-balanced diet shouldn't consist of only salad or only post-Easter clearance shelf mini eggs, a well-balanced consumption of media is great for the mind and the spirit. So with this in mind, let's get into it. Starting with transcendent art. Uh, Dan, I know you had just read a great novel why don't we start with you? I did. I returned to the canon uh, and read what has been considered or said by some to be the greatest English language novel ever written. And that is Middlemarch by Marianne Evans, AKA George Eliot. And let me tell you, it did not disappoint. Evans must have had the most exquisite observational skills because she writes a beautiful portrait or study if you will, of an England on the verge of industrial and social revolution and the individuals caught up in it. Although that's all sort of a background to the central relationships of the novel, it almost disguises itself as uh, period drama. Although I don't know if that applies to how the genre would have looked like at the time. I don't know much about the historicity of the novel. Yeah, I think an interesting fact about it is that it was written about a period like a few decades before it was actually released. Yeah, three decades, I want to say. That's cool. And yeah, uh, I would say her descriptions of the men of privilege in the society are still frighteningly accurate today. I saw way too much of myself in most of the male characters <laughs> and her themes are similarly timeless. The deconstruction of the great man narrative of history, her focus on the small heroics of everyday life that often fall upon gendered lines, absolutely stunning and particularly important during times like these. I think that it highlights the ways in which we need to do better by the people that go into work every day that take care of the other people in their lives and in their communities every day in small ways that aren't recognized by society. And to, these days we might frame them as frontline workers in grocery stores and hospitals without whom all of this gestures broadly to everything wouldn't work for the rest of us. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, the in incredible thing about Middlemarch to me is that 
like Elliot manages to make every character so relatable and like just portrays them with such emotional sensitivity. And that's the thing is that on one hand, like I think it could be read as a critique of a certain like uh, a certain amount of privilege and masculinity. But on the other hand, she writes with such nuance and such a uh, humanitarian eye uh, and care for her characters that it never feels mean-spirited. It never, while at the same time not coddling them, it's very accurate and precise, but it never, it also never condemns, condemns the characters. Hmm. That's pleasant. <laughs> well, I actually haven't read Middlemarch yet. And oh, now I'm very excited to, it sounds incredible. Um, and typically I do try to challenge myself to read some, some older, more like critically acclaimed literature, but just given the circumstances, it's been really hard to push myself to, to get through some of those heavier books. So yeah. for the most part, I've definitely been um, finding myself more in the, the guilty pleasure trash category, but I did, I did read a couple of good books this year. Um, one that I just finished not too long ago was Never Let Me Go by Kazuo Ishiguro. And it was shocking. I mean, I, I was not expecting the story to go where it went. And just the way that the foreshadowing built you up to what was actually going on in the story was so nuanced and so beautifully done. I have sort of something yes. I could mention in the vein maybe of Middle March. Yeah. Um, I've been reading Elena Ferrante's Neapolitan novels. Now, these are not quite as canonical, but I believe that one day they will be. Um, I mentioned on a previous episode that I was reading The Story of a New Name, which is the second um, in the four-part series. It's about a pair of girls growing up as best friends in 1950s Naples, but it's not really about that. It's about human relationships. Mm -hmm. And what I love about it, as with Middlemarch, is it has such like a long arc of development. Um, I don't know, you sort of really feel the dynamics of like human growth over the scale of a lifetime. Mm. And her writing is totally uncompromising and raw, but it's also extremely elegant and I would say the two books I've read so far have literally reawakened me um, amid the numbness of isolation to the emotional nuance and variety of life. And that's not an exaggeration. So I highly, highly recommend. So let's get into some other media that we consumed. Uh, I know that we just went into a bunch of literature and novels, which makes sense because that is the traditional purview of the library, but did y'all experience any art in other media that was transcendent? Yes. So I was contemplating where this particular item would best fit given our three categories. And I had to eventually settle on calling it transcendent art. And the game, this is a video game, is called Bioshock, Bioshock Infinite, specifically and it deals with the multiverse and a lot of political overtones and it's just so well done the way that the story's woven throughout the gameplay is 
marvelous. It's an older game. I came to this very late. I believe this game came out in 2013 and the previous ones came out in like 2007 and before that. So yeah, it's not super recent, but the thing that really made me put it in this category is the fact that I just ordered a collection of scholarly essays on the video game. And so I believe that it is therefore a form of transcendent art or something belonging on an academic syllabus because it's been deemed worthy of scholarly criticism. So that's my take. Uh, for me, I would say a different media was the ragu bolognese from bolognese. I pronunciation. <laughs> I want to say bolognese. Bolognese. Okay, we'll go with that. Uh, it's yeah. recipe from the Edmonton Cooks Cookbook, which is a collection of recipes from local restaurants. It has some of my favorites in there. Uh, Shanghai Four Five Six and Corso Thirty Two, which is what this recipe comes from which has become a staple for my household. It is easy, it's delicious. I sub out the beef for bison sometimes and sometimes the noodles for spaghetti chitara, but literally chef's kiss. Cooking in general, getting in touch with your food, whether it is through your kitchen or garden. Yeah, I'll consider that a transcendent art. I mean, there's a whole Pixar movie about that. And as a segue perhaps to our next section, I will also give a shout out to the return of Top Chef on April 1st. I loved Padma Lakshmi's Taste the Nation series 100%, but for whatever reason, Top Chef will always be the top chef of reality TV in my heart. So unless anyone has any other transcendent media, let's get into the stuff that I know that formed the bulk of our media experiences during this pandemic which is the trashy junk. Woo. <laughs> yeah. I right. love to, to dig into a, a steaming hot bowl of trash. <laughs> I'm ready for it. Who doesn't? <laughs> <laughs> okay, Timothy, I know you've been enjoying some YouTube as of late. Yeah, so let me, let me tell you all about it. Um, it's wrong really to call the type of YouTube content I like trash because it takes a great deal of skill to make well, but it's definitely not high art and it's not even properly therapeutic because the mark of good YouTube content for me is that it passes through my system almost entirely without being noticed. So it requires <laughs> minimal engagement, minimal interest. There's nothing to process. And oh, I love that. Yeah, yeah. Some of the things that achieve that for me are video game let's plays. So Sometimes it's a little bit too demanding to actually play a video game yourself. <laughs> so the perfect uh, alternative is to watch a stranger play a video game and talk about it. I so love there's something extremely cozy about that. And I think that's a theme for all these YouTube things for me. Another is Project Farm. So there's this guy who reviews hardware and other common household implements. <laughs> so have you ever <laughs> wondered which are the best wood screws the best mounts. <laughs> What's I the have most never effective? This in my life. Yeah. But What's now I'm <laughs> exactly. I didn't know I needed to know these things until until I found them out. Like I found out mm -hmm. as I realized I needed to know. So, what's the most effective weed whacker string? Which duct tape brand has the greatest tensile strength? Ooh. Which has the strongest adhesive? Project Farm is determined to find these answers for us. 
and he designs a barrage of tests for different variables of performance and shows each brand being tested. And there's something extremely wow. cathartic about watching 10 different brands of duct tape all being stretched under identical <laughs> conditions and wondering okay. which will take the most force to break. Timothy, <laughs> I think you found an example that literally traverses the entire set of categories that we have here today. <laughs> it's true. It's all of them. And it's it, all it, of the things. Yeah. Incredible. It is therapeutic, partly because it's almost like vicariously working with your hands. Well, and based on your description, it sounds like he's using some rigorous science. Mm -hmm. Like the scientific method is present. Yeah. And it's art also. And it's, it's high it's art, art as well. And so. it's art. It's science and art. I wow. put it in trash. Um, <laughs> just because you like to throw things in the trash yeah. Um, just yeah no it makes sense the digestibility of it yeah and lastly this one's kind of similar um it's a channel called techmone it's it's about it's by a british guy who looks exactly like my dad talking about <laughs> retro pieces of consumer technology that he's come across so he'll spend literally tw 20 minutes to an hour talking about a single model of boombox or about some obscure music format that had a failed launch in the 50s. And this is extremely comforting to me somehow. Beautiful. <laughs> yeah. I love that. Well, on a very, very different tangent, um, Stephanie Meyer finally released Midnight Sun in this COVID year. And so I got to enjoy that and get in touch with 13-year-old me. <laughs> When, when that book was originally leaked, because it was, it was 2008. And I remember going downstairs before school. So getting up at like six, going downstairs in the cold in the dead of winter to use my dad's desktop computer to read it online. Wow. Yeah, I was committed. So now I'm very delighted to have a hardcover copy of this book which is absolute trash, absolute garbage. I love and the I'll... idea of a book being leaked. Yeah. <laughs> Be free. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, no, it was, it was crazy. Um, yeah, because, well, if you're, if you're not familiar, Midnight Sun is just Twilight told from Edward's perspective, from the main male character's perspective, um, which no one asked for. No one wanted this, but here we are. <laughs> <laughs> and I ate it all up. I was also introduced last summer now uh, from my sister and one of my best friends who conspired to introduce our pandemic bubble to what some consider to be America's greatest sport, Survivor. We basically went through seasons and episodes at random which made it a pretty fascinating watch, skipping through Survivor chronology like Doc and Marty. And I gotta say, there's a pretty fascinating kind of timeline. The whole thing ends up becoming standardized by the later seasons. I think they're on like season 41 or something now. And it becomes almost like I said, like a sport uh, where there's a standardization of how you play the games and the games, mini games that come up and the metagame that gets played. And ultimately you, you see less women and visible minorities win in later seasons. And 
the challenges are less physically brutal in earlier seasons. They're just wailing on each other. And in earlier seasons, they're eating rats and stuff at certain points. It's deeply bizarre. And it makes a lot of sense why it went a certain way. Uh, but it's also kind of sad to see this kind of dominant white masculinity end up rising to the top through the, the shaping and standardization of the way the game reflects broader American culture. And I am looking forward to watching exactly one season as it airs live and then never interacting with this dark mirror to society ever again. Any other trash highlights? Or shall we move on to our third category? I'd say we can move on. Let's, let's jump into COVID coping and therapeutic media. I myself have been reading literal self-help books, um, Un-F Your Brain and The Gifts of Imperfection are two that have been quite helpful with anxiety related issues. Um, but I also read the Jane Austen Guide to Life, which though not specifically self-help, I do find very therapeutic and it does really ground me in what matters, you know? Um, and then other than that, I've been watching like yoga videos mm -hmm. because that's also grounding, specifically yoga with Adrian mm -hmm. because she has a really cute dog named Benji and she talks in a sweet voice and yeah. I just feel so held. She has a very soothing presence. Yeah. Interesting. I will have to yeah. check that out. Even like through YouTube, you can feel it. Yeah. yeah. I think similar to what Tim alluded to earlier with Project Farms is that one of the most therapeutic things I think has been kind of like a very low stakes approach to working through a process and working with your hands and uh, working anxiety out that way uh, to the point where I feel like there's almost if I were to put on my librarian hat two subcategories of this category. One where it's very literally kind of cathartic. Uh, earlier in the pandemic, I watched Contagion. And at first, threw it on as a lark, basically. But I found the way that the camera lingered on people's hands and public surfaces and background extra sneezing and just directly dealing with the idea of a pandemic to be very cathartic. I felt very seen, but then the other, the other subcategory being this kind of thing where you're uh, working maybe in your garden or uh, building something, doing some minor home renos uh, or getting outside were also very therapeutic things. Mm -hmm. Yeah, to add to your category with Ken Contagion, I did watch that at the beginning of the pandemic, which I agree. The lingering on the on the contact of the surfaces and all that, it, yeah, so unsettling, but also so cathartic. I have also been reading a lot of science fiction, but weirdly focusing on things that deal with pandemics as if I really want to torture myself, but truly it is cathartic. I just finished Station Eleven by Emily St. John Mandel, which was really well done, but very, very real, um, almost painfully so. The pandemic just wipes out most of humanity. You observe as people kind of just try to survive the situation and 
make the best of it, but it's, it's rough. I mean, I guess I feel better since our situation isn't quite that bad. This, this version, this virus that they have is much more deadly than what we're dealing with, fortunately, but fortunately, I don't even know if I can use that word in that sentence, but it is what it is. Um, I had a similar experience uh, reading Severance by Ling Ma right before the pandemic started actually. And that was a trip, let me tell you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But I would highly recommend it, great book. Okay, cool. Yeah, at least the book that I read, the Station Eleven, it deals with a lot of themes of like legacy and fame and like finding purpose when no one's watching. I, I think like it deals with some interesting themes in that way. And there's this part where there's like this museum of forgotten items from time past. And yeah, there's this really cool commentary on, I don't know, the persistence of things. Yeah, that's interesting. I also had a similar experience during the pandemic to what Timothy was saying with that, that teaching you how to feel again, where, but it was squished down into a microcosm. Uh, so my friends and I had gone out camping and stuff like that. And I had to get back into the city for an appointment. So I left early. And I don't know if any of y'all remember the massive downpour thunderstorm that happened last summer. There's one specifically, or maybe yeah. I just recognized it because I of was, the situation. I was out at a market. I was outside. Wow. Okay. So I was coming back from the mountains on my motorbike and it was the worst conditions that I have ever been on that in. And usually part of the reasons I like riding is that it kind of exposes you to the elements, the landscape in a way that makes it you feel like more maybe immersed in the landscape you're traveling through. Mm -hmm. But this was bad and it was coming down and I was in that stretch between Leduc and Edmonton and the visibility was absolute garbage. And so I didn't think it was safe to pull to the side of the road. So I decided to just keep riding through it and just like, through sheer stubbornness and the adrenaline rush, I managed to actually make it home. And finally got back to my house, put the bike in the garage. I was just soaked, went inside, changed into sweatpants and dry clothes, ate whatever calories were at hand, and yeah. still shaking from that kind of emptiness that long-term adrenaline leaves behind. I couldn't go to sleep or anything. I was too wired. I was too exhausted at the same time. And so the obvious answer was watching something. And that is where I found the TV show Euphoria. I think that the media discourse kind of has it wrong about this one. I don't think it's in any way trying to describe like, this is what the kids are doing. Uh, let's all be shocked and appalled kind of, which is how it's discussed in the media. I really do think that it's literally what if HBO decided to do a teen drama like the OC or Gossip Girl or One Tree Hill or whatever. So it's just that same kind of genre, but with more explicit swearing in adult situations as HBO does. But I do think that it's actually a great look at gender roles. It has one of the best villains these teen dramas have ever produced, a great soundtrack, 
And I just watched the entire thing in one go, which is normally not what I do, but I was just sitting there numb from the entire experience and slowly caring about the main characters and the relationship they form taught me to be a human again. Amazing. I think that's... Go ahead, Timothy. I think that's like perfect because it just shows like, it's more obvious than ever how your relationship with media is like contingent on the circumstances in which you engage with it. And during the pandemic, there have been so many moments when I haven't been able to read, haven't been able to process anything. And then other moments where I just feel like like an unmediated connection to whatever I'm listening to or reading or, and it's just um, good to be mindful of how like these things come in phases. And like, you know, if you're not able to process transcendent art right now or even trash right now you know yeah yeah maybe tomorrow you'll have like a euphoric rush of just (laughs) just like (laughs) the words entering your bloodstream mainlining totally yeah and I think that especially as academics we put a lot of pressure on ourselves that we expect ourselves to be able to consume high art so easily and so frequently and to engage with academically rigorous media and no, we need breaks. Everyone needs a break. We need to consume some trash. We need to watch all three seasons of Karate Kid in like two weeks. Hey, future Belinda here. What past Belinda meant to say was Cobra Kai, not Karate Kid, but you knew what I meant. And I think that your assessment of the way that our consumption of media is either at times really hits you to the core, you're really processing it and engaging with it critically and consciously, as where other times it's just kind of passing around you. You're just a rock in the stream. And this kind of parallels my experience with music lately as well. I've found that during the pandemic, I'm not commuting as much and I'm not spending as much time creating playlists or looking for new music. I'm just kind of consuming whatever playlist Apple Music generates for me. the odd time I find a song that I connect with or that I really like, but it's not the same. I just don't feel like I'm actively engaging with the music to the same extent as I normally would. Would you say that that's a shared experience? Yeah, I had the opposite experience in that I was, I was commuting, um, taking an hour walk to and from my workplace. Um, And I found myself listening to, just in the past couple of months, like a new album just about every day. And there were a few that like hit just right. One of which was um, an overview of Phenomenal Nature by Cassandra Jenkins. And that came out a couple of months ago. And I found it was the perfect musical soundscape for the beginnings of a spring thaw, um, a full year into an unrelenting pandemic. It's kind of genreless. I mean, you might describe it loosely as folk, but it has sort of gentle and expansive instrumentation that's even jazzy at times. Um, the, the lyrics, though, are really what make the album for me. Um, she reflects on rebuilding and growth after a period of loss in her own life. And it's so compelling and relevant to the pandemic that I was convinced it was written in response to it, um, especially because in the first track, there's an explicit reference to a virus, which I thought was a little too on the nose at the time. But then I found out it was entirely written and recorded prior to the pandemic, um, with the exception of one track, the ambient closing track, 
So I was just amazed by how prescient and relevant it was. And I would say you can't really fault prophecy for being too on the nose. So shall we wrap it up? I think we should wrap it up. And the script says, say something witty to wrap up the episode. <laughs> so here we are. <laughs> something witty. <laughs> <laughs> Beautiful. Okay, Tim. Okay, so uh, follow us on our Facebook page or Instagram at Shout for Libraries or on, or on Twitter at Shout, the number four libraries. And you can find all our past episodes on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or Spotify. Want to have your voice heard on Shout? We're always looking for new full-time and part-time contributors to join our team. Get in touch at news at cjsr.com to find out more. And in fact, this is very likely my last episode with Shout. It's been lit. Oh, and as per usual, don't forget to check it, check it out. out. <laughs> what is that even supposed to mean? I don't know. It was just in the script template.